in Mark 8, 27 through 37. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anna. All right. Hey, good morning. As always, really good to see you guys. My name is Ben. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm a, a one of several pastors around here, but um, get to serve as lead pastor of this congregation. So, man, guests um, really are honored that you'd be with us today. And um, welcome to the holidays, man. We're still in it. I know it feels like we're not, but we've all got that holiday haze going on. Everybody's a little sleepy. Everybody's a little tired, people traveling, um, but just honored that you would be here with us today. So thank you for, for coming to church. Okay, so we have been studying the book of Mark for a long time, and um, it's been so long. Most of you have slept since then. I know I have since we've been in Mark, but we spent a lot of weeks in the book of Mark, and we got several more to go. And this book of the Bible is going to take us basically a year, but we pushed pause on it to celebrate Christmas. And for us, that means uh, the entire season of the church calendar of Advent. Now, some of you might not be familiar with Advent. Advent is um, historically in the church and historically for us has been pausing to really look uh, towards the incarnation. The incarnation literally means becoming flesh. And what that is, is the incarnation is God becoming flesh. That's Jesus. And Christmas is the celebration of Jesus. That's why we sing things like peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And uh, we talk about wonderful counselor and prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. All of that we sing, and that's all straight out of the Bible to prophesy about Jesus coming. So we took several weeks, we paused for Mark and we took several weeks to just preach through Advent and the incarnation. And one of the most important pieces of Advent is the reason we take four weeks to do it is because historically in the church, which by the way, let me just say this about us. We're not, we're not like entrepreneurs. The church is not entrepreneurial. We're not catalysts for some new idea or some new way to do things. Anytime you see a church person, let me make sure I'm saying this right. Be weary, be leery 
of church, churches or church people that act like they've now been the first ones to corner the market on how to do church. There is no such thing. The church is historic, and it would be the height of arrogance for us to think that we've somehow cornered the market, and we're entrepreneurs, and we're finally going to be the New Testament church, finally, just us, just you guys, just me, just Frontline Shawnee, we finally figured it out. We don't need anybody's help. We don't need history. We don't need that. That's a very dangerous thing. So when I say that we're jumping into the stream of historical church, that actually is really important for our accountability and for us to keep our heads on straight because there's lots of men and women that have gone before us that have fought the good fight. They finished the race and we need them. We need them. So we celebrate Advent, church calendar. It's us pausing and it's us jumping into the stream of the church. And Advent has been that 400 years of silence between God speaking to his people in the Old Testament and God coming himself as Messiah. In the Old Testament, you had the people of God, which is Israel, God spoke to through the prophets. He spoke audibly through signs, wonders. That's how God spoke. And it really mattered to them because Israel was the people of God. Their identity was, we are the people of God. And we know that because he speaks to us and he's told us. He's made a covenant with us. Well, God stopped speaking. For 400 years, he didn't speak. Just please, please wrap your head around. Let's please act like for a minute that the Bible's full of actual people who have a heartbeat and blood flow and they forget things. Imagine going 400 years. I struggle to remember what I did this morning. I was talking with some friends earlier. They asked me, how was your week? And I was like, uh, I'm alive. I'm alive. It must have been all right. I mean, I know I have a bad memory, but my goodness, I mean, that's just normal for everybody. How was your week? Good. Good. We don't even know what we're saying. <laughs> I'd have to sit down and take me a whole week to even remember what I did every week, the last week. This is 400 years of silence between God speaking to them and then the Messiah coming. And they had heard about the Messiah. He'd been prophesied that a Messiah would come. And Isaiah 9 says that he will sit on the throne of David. In Daniel 7, which both of those are Old Testament books, Daniel 7, it was prophesied that a king would come through the line of David and that he would sit on the throne of all the rulers of the world. He would basically overthrow them. So this Messiah, this Savior, in their mind, he's coming. We believe it. He's going to come. He's going to establish Israel as the dominant superpower again. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to be the king of all kings. He's going to be king over everything. They believed it, man. They were hyped about it. 400 years comes and goes. You start to forget. Silence and then God breaks the silence and Mark is the story of God breaking the silence. There's four books of the Bible that chronicle the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest and most fast-paced of the Gospels. So we're studying this book and it really matters, especially coming on the heels of Advent. 
Before we jump fully back into Mark, I wanna take today to give us a little bit of an overview and to kind of recharge us on what is happening in Mark and then what we have to look forward to. So if you're a note taker in the room, there's gonna be a lot of context. Today is your day. Um, by all means, take as much, many notes as you want. We'll have some points on the screen as well. So let's talk about Mark. The book of Mark is asking the question primarily, who is Jesus? Now the whole Bible really is asking that. Every Old Testament page, every New Testament page, it's all about Jesus. But this book in particular is asking that question and has an answer for us. So remember that, who is Jesus? Let's talk about the author of this book, Mark. It never mentions the author's name, although the title is Mark, so that's kind of a giveaway. History tells us that the author was a traveling companion and close friend of the apostle Peter, known as John Mark. Mark was not an apostle, John Mark was not an apostle. He was also not a disciple. Those two things are different. Apostles, Paul, who wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but was an apostle. Peter was a disciple and an apostle. John Mark was neither one of those things. So it's interesting for Mark to write a book about the life of Jesus when he wasn't there. Some scholars think that Mark's mother's home was the location of the Last Supper. We don't know that, but everyone agrees that Mark's home later became a gathering spot for early Christians in Acts. Mark and his family were very involved in the church in the, new, in the first New Testament church. In fact, uh, if you remember the story of Acts, when Peter was miraculously released from prison, which is a crazy story in Acts 12, it was John Mark's house that he showed up at. John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark with Barnabas, and I know these are weird names. If you don't know the Bible much, I'm so sorry, but just hang in there. Barnabas, all these people like ran together, right? Paul, Peter, Barnabas, John Mark. And John Mark had sort of a falling out. Barnabas, Mark, and Paul, there was a little bit of a disagreement. They later got restored, but there was a disagreement. They kind of went their separate ways. And he, Mark, became a vital leader in the early church, serving closely alongside of Paul after restoration and Peter until their execution in 64 AD, after this great fire of Rome. And what you have in Mark's gospel is not a man who had walked with Jesus, but a man who had walked with someone who walked with Jesus. And throughout the thread of Christian history, it has been assumed and concluded that Mark was giving the account of Peter's life with Jesus. That's what this book is. It's Peter telling Mark, Write this down, here's what happened. Which is interesting because Mark is the shortest gospel and there are a few small embarrassing moments about Peter that are just kind of like not talked about in quite as much detail as the other gospels. <clears throat> Mark is an amazing book, it's fast paced. 16 chapters, it's the shortest gospel. It says the word in Mark has the word immediately, 16 chapters, the word immediately is mentioned 42 times. This book is moving. There's no like great detail about Jesus being born, his birth, like all the other gospels. Um, there's no detail about his birth. Well, especially in Matthew and Luke. John's a little more conceptual, which I love. 16 chapters. It's moving at the speed of sound. Who's it written to? Remember this, 
Everything we read in the Bible is written to a group of people. That group of people had jobs. They had spouses and kids. They had all kinds of problems in their life. They had injuries and sickness and they were actual people. The people who were writing the book were actual people. However, it was the Holy Spirit who's writing this book through people. So this book is actually written by God. So Mark was written through Mark by the Holy Spirit to a group of people. And that group of people were first century Christians in Rome. And why is that important? Here's why. Rome was a terrible place to be a Christian. Maybe the worst of all time. A lot of historians would say that there's been no greater persecution on a religious group in the history of the world outside of this particular time in Rome for Christians. It's the greatest. The most persecution, the most turmoil ever by any religious group was probably these first century Christians in Rome. Rome had a ruler that they all agreed was God. This particular ruler was named Nero. And when he was born, they would announce things like the gospel of the birth of Nero. Gospel means good news. Christians come along and they say, no, 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 no. There's one gospel. Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says, the gospel of the birth of Jesus. This flies in the face of cultural idols. Nero hated Christians. There was a great fire in Rome. And most people think that Nero probably caused it because he was only looking out for himself. Of course, what he did was he manipulated and he blamed Christians. And because of that, everybody was okay with Christians. But when that happened, everybody hated them. As a matter of fact, they tried to murder them. Nero was terrible. He was the ruler. It was the greatest nation in the world. Christians were existing in that nation. And imagine having the governor, the ruler, hate you so much that he wants you all to die. Here's how much he hated them. He would take animal skins and he would sew them to the bodies of Christians. That's painful enough. Strip them down, sew animal skins on them, and then people would buy tickets, fill a whole coliseum to come and see that Christian with animal skin sewed to him, get torn to shreds by another animal. He wanted the beasts to see Christians how he saw them, which is nothing but beasts. If that's not bad enough, Nero would take Christians, put them on poles, string them up on poles, cover them in oil or kerosene or whatever they used, light them on fire to give light to his parties. Imagine being at a party where a human being is burning alive. Nero hated Christians. He hated them. So what do you do if you're a Christian? This morning, you decided to come to church. You braved the cold, braved the wind, most of us, some of us in the room, it's probably a little bit of a discussion we have with family. Like, should we go? Can we go? It's cold out there. Going to take the car a long time to warm up. 
I'd rather sleep or whatever. I'm not trying to shame you, but these Christians had to get up before dawn for fear of their life, gathered together as a church. They had to meet in the graveyard in the catacombs, which was underneath the city, nothing but dead bodies, decay, and a terrible smell all around. And they had to leave before daybreak so they wouldn't be caught and murdered. Interesting. Mark is writing a fast-paced, instant need gospel to a people who instantly needed it. That's what Mark is. Immediately God comes. Immediately Jesus does that. He goes from one town to the next because these people were urgent. They had an urgent need. They didn't know if they were going to leave church that day and lose their life. What would happen is in the catacombs, you would have the priest or bishop or whoever would stand up and he would read this gospel to them. He would read this letter to them and he would keep reading it and keep reading it and keep reading it. This letter, this book would have been incredibly good news for you. It makes me wonder like, you know, the church, God has historically used persecution to grow the church. Church grew incredibly fast during this time. Christians being murdered brutally. They loved this book. It was life to them. They would read the words and the Holy Spirit inspired would give it. It had a heartbeat. And they would read it and they cherished it. And they would go to the catacombs uh, probably thinking that they were gonna die. A brutal, long, embarrassing death. And it didn't matter what socioeconomic class they came from. I mean, that did not matter. Rich people, well-to-do people, whatever. If you said that you're a Christian, you were gonna die. And they would go and they would sneak around and then they would get to church and love each other and hug each other. And, and I can't believe you made it. I mean, imagine showing up going, you made it this week. You made it here today. You're not, you're not dead, you're alive. Praise God to open this book. And to read it, and to read when Jesus says, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does it profit a man that he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I don't think that we have a good enough grip on this. They did. And I'm not trying to compare, look, God saves us in the same way with the same power and same authority that he saved them with. God is not like unimpressed with 2022 or whatever. It's not like he's back there and not here. He's here. We face life. Life is tough. I get it. But there's something that we're missing. I mean, this book would have been a lifeblood for them. And for us, I'm preaching to myself. For us, it's like, I, mean, I guess... I'll find time to read it sometime. It has a heartbeat. It's sustained the church. The first half of this book of Mark covers nearly three years of Jesus' public ministry. Three years and 11 chapters, and the rest of it is about one week. It's the passion of the Christ. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his death and resurrection summed up in chapter 16. And it's split right down the middle. You've got 16 chapters, one through eight 
is one section, and then eight through 16 is the next. And here's the answer to the question, who is Jesus? The answer is this, Jesus is the king. He is the king. That's the question the book is answering, but then the other part of the answer is this, Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that you think. So I wanna jump into this, man, and let me just invite you, join in with the first century Roman Christians. Those are the saints that have gone before. They're still alive. They're with Jesus eternally. And you will be too one day if you're a Christian. So today, you're about to open this book with people who read the same thing thinking they were gonna die. I mean, heroes of the faith. So let's not treat it lightly. Let's read the Bible. Let's let it sink into our heart and let's be formed by it. The first point, Jesus is the king. Again, God's people had been promised a king. Daniel 7. Um, obviously, Samuel. Uh, Isaiah 9. There was a promise of a king. And they kept wanting the type of king that they didn't need, though. In First and Second Samuel, you have Saul rise up. And because the people of God said they wanted a king like the nations. Basically, Give us a king like everybody else's. We're tired of this compassion or whatever. We want a king like the nation that draws his sword and conquers enemies and sits on the throne and has power and authority and we feel safe under. So God tells them, that's not a good idea, but I'll give you what you want. He gives them Saul. Saul looked the part, acted the part, said the right things. He was a conqueror. Later on, Saul becomes a madman and about destroys Israel. He comes after David. David was an anointed king. Saul tries to murder David and loses his mind. Saul eventually abandons the faith, abandons God. But God raises up David, a man after his own heart. They believe that the king would come. These people now, Messiah, they believe their savior would come after 400 years of silence. And they thought he would come like the nations to overthrow Rome, to be the ruler that they wanted to sit on the throne and give them pride and establish Israel as the powerful nation above all. So after 400 years of silence, Jesus shows up. And I mean it when I say all hell breaks loose. Multiple healings, multiple, multiple moments, raising people from the dead. I mean, it is going crazy. If there's ever a moment in time, especially in Mark, where it is just kind of, press together all these great things that Jesus is doing, it goes crazy. The kingdom of God is advancing. Mark 1, 14. After John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus goes on doing crazy things that would absolutely confirm his statement of the kingdom of God is at hand. He casts out demons with authority. In Mark 5, he casts out a legion of demons, thousands of them. Imagine that. You've never probably witnessed anything like that. It's hard enough just getting one out of someone, but thousands with authority, Jesus casts them out. In Mark 4, Jesus calms a massive, deadly storm just by a word, peace be still. Mark 5, Again, he heals a woman of a blood disorder. This woman had a blood disorder that nobody could figure out. She'd been to doctors for years. All she does is touches Jesus' garment, she's healed. Also in Mark 5, Jesus, one of my favorite stories, 
uh, a temple official who hated, all the temple officials hated Jesus. This one gets desperate because his little girl is about to die. Any dads in the room with little girls, you, you, you can imagine if that was your daughter, I don't, you wouldn't care what anybody said, how much you hated them, what you don't even think about yourself. You'll do whatever it takes to get that little girl healthy. Jairus was his name. He goes to Jesus. He's the only hope he has. The girl dies. Jesus on his way to her and Jesus raises her from the dead. Sweet. In Mark 6, he feeds thousands of people with only enough food really to feed one family. He multiplies the food. He blesses it, the fish and the loaves, and he multiplies it, scatters out, feeds over 5,000 people. Then... He goes out and walks on water. My goodness. Everybody's asking, who is Jesus? I mean, at this point, like his family said he was insane, a madman. The disciples didn't believe who he was, even though Jesus kept telling them. The religious leaders, the ones who knew the Bible, called him the devil. He has cast out demons. He has power over evil. He has calmed the storm, power over nature. He's risen a little girl from the dead, power even over death. And then one of my favorite things that he did was he walked on water. You know why that's so profound? People in this day, they would have called the seas chaos, literally hell for them. The seas represented chaos. The creature of the sea, all the way back in Job, Old Testament story, Leviathan would have been seen as the devil. Leviathan was the creature of the sea. Chaos, hell, and the devil. I love it. Jesus walks on water doing something crazy to the human eye while simultaneously putting Satan under his feet. We have proof. This man is the king. How could you deny it? It's this point in the Bible when Jesus asked this question. He went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. I can't deny it. I've seen too much. You're the Christ. And in Peter's mind, Immediately, you know what that meant for him? That meant finally we have a Messiah who's gonna draw his sword and drive out the Romans and sit on the throne and make us conquerors again. Peter was in, dude. <laughs> he was in. He was in. It's like for us, your favorite sports teams 
or nation or whatever. We get so adamant, so obsessed about who our coach is going to be or what recruits we get in or whatever. Who the president, all this stuff, man, we want our team, our nation to be dominant. That's what Peter wanted. That's what he thought he was owed. And he saw Jesus with all this power on display and he said, finally, yes, we have our guy. He's gonna overthrow the Romans and overthrow every other nation because you remember what Daniel 7 said and you remember what Isaiah said and you remember what, um, you remember what all the Old Testament prophets said? I mean, he's gonna sit on the throne of David. We are in, dude, Israel's back. Literally right here is where the book turns completely. Jesus had told them things like the son of man came to serve, not be served. Unless you become like a little child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus told him this time and time again, but they're like, okay, whatever, dude. But let's just, can we go ahead and overthrow the Romans right now? <laughs> that, they literally ask him that. They don't get it. It seems like my fear, honestly, for you guys, my fear for you personally and for me today is that we start thinking about this is a thing that happened to a person a long time ago and it's not really real for us today. But you do this exact same thing. So do I. We want Jesus to be the king, but and we would agree, man. Imagine in Oklahoma, if you went to church and you went on Facebook after this is over and you, and you said, Jesus is not the king. Boy, isn't that interesting? You would be shunned, outcast by, ironically, a bunch of people who probably actually don't even follow Jesus. But culturally speaking, dude, we are in on Jesus being the king. That statement, yeah, Jesus is the king. He's my Lord and Savior. We hear it all the time. It's our phrase. It's our cultural identity here. We're Christians, church people. But when it comes to the type of king that he actually is, that's when it gets messy, especially like the disciples. We like Jesus. We like Jesus being the king. You know why? Because he votes like me. You know why I like Jesus? I know that he would vote exactly like me. I know that. There's no way. I know that he would want the exact same things that I want. I know that he would believe exactly like I believe. He would probably do, I, you know what? I bet you he would live his life just exactly like I would. We love Jesus as long as he fits into our mold. Jesus would establish us as the power. He would be all about pleasure. He would give me what I want. Of course, we'd have morals, but I bet you, Jesus, if he was here, man, I'd get what I want, you know, because Jesus is moral, so we got to have morals, but ultimately, like, comfort wins. He wants me to have all the money that I want. He wants me to be as healthy as I want to be. Jesus is ultimately, man, he's here to make me have the good life. So interesting. The disciples, Israel would have said, he's come to overthrow the Roman government. And ultimately what they're saying is he's come to establish us as the king. But we do the same thing. 
We do the same thing. He's going to come overthrow our enemies and establish us in comfort and power and authority. Is that God, what God ultimately wants is for you to be comfortable? Jesus is the king, but he's not the king that we thought. He's not the king that they thought. Immediately after this, he tells them, Peter tells Jesus, you are the Christ. What a revelation. It's exactly that moment. It's right in the middle of Mark. It's right when the whole book turns. And this is what happens. He began to teach them that the son of, this is Jesus now, after he's been admitted to by Peter as the Christ. And then he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And I love this phrase right here, if you can see it up there. And he said this plainly. Just in case you're wondering if any words got mixed up or there was anything lost in translation, Jesus said to them plainly. So please, just maybe if you can, just kind of like imagine, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter says, you're it. You are the Christ, no doubt. In, in Peter's mind, that means he's the one that's gonna overthrow Rome. I have no doubt. I've seen the signs and wonders. I've seen his power. He's it. And then Jesus comes over here and immediately says, I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes and be killed. The very people that you're supposed to be here to establish their kingdom, priests, scribes, Pharisees, Israel, are gonna be the ones that kill you and it's gonna happen at the hands of Rome. If you're Peter, you have freaked out. What do you mean? You're supposed to conquer them and establish our kingdom. Whatever do you mean, Jesus? I just came to the conclusion in my heart and my mind that you're the Messiah. And now you're gonna die? What? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Lord, have mercy. That's a pretty strong rebuke. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Fact is, is that Jesus is gonna overthrow all the rulers and powers of the earth, but he's not gonna do it through politics or governments or rulers or whatever. He's gonna overthrow our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. They, Peter, didn't quite understand that they needed a savior from themselves. 
from Satan, from the world, from their flesh. They thought the government was their enemy and that Jesus was gonna give them what we do. We do this so much. We want quick fixes, impulse. That's what we go to. We cannot see past our nose. And Jesus is in the long game. This is about eternity. He knows who true enemies are. They're the devil, they're death, they're sin. Jesus is the king that we need. He's just not what we expected. He's not here to give his disciples more power or better reputations. He's not here to agree with you. He's not here to hate the people that you hate or like the people that you like. He's not here to make your life better or more comfortable. Rome wasn't the problem. Government's not the problem. Politics are not the problem. Taxes, finances, or everybody else is not the problem. The problem for the disciples in Jesus' day and for us today is the exact same. The problem with humans is Satan, sin, and death. That's the problem. And Jesus can see past his nose and sets his face like flint now towards the cross to conquer our greatest enemies. And then to be raised from the dead and the way that he does it, this is brilliant, man. I, and it's brutal, but it's brilliant. The way that he does it is he's put to death by the very same government that his people thought he was, he was gonna overthrow. He's put to the worst kind of shame and death at their hands, a Roman torture device called a cross. The embarrassment, the shame, all of that, that was meant for us. We deserve that. We deserve death by our enemies. We deserve open shame and embarrassment. The beauty of Jesus, this is why he's the king of all kings, not just silly little kings on earth. He's the king of all kings, earth, under the earth, above the earth of all time, because he went to the place that, was, that we deserved that we could never actually go to. He went to that place. It was meant for you, meant for me. Jesus embarrassed himself, brought shame on himself, suffered a terrible death. He's the king of kings because of what he's done. What kind of king is he? He rides on a donkey, not a war horse. He's humble. He suffers greatly at the hands of his enemies, which include you and me, by the way. He's rejected by us, betrayed by his closest friends and murdered by the people he created. He offers a better slash the only remedy for our hard and dead hearts. He offers grace of God. One of my favorite stories as we get ready to close, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is about Peter. Peter was a disciple, walked with Jesus. Mark is the account of Peter's life with Jesus. Peter freaks out, man. And Mark 8, I mean, right now he's lost it. Like he rebukes Jesus. It's like, what, what kind of crazy person do you have to be <laughs> to rebuke Jesus? Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. And then we go through this next, like a series of Peter just acting a fool. I mean, it's like all of a sudden, it seems like Peter is trying to be what he thinks Jesus should be. Like Peter draws his sword at the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you know the story. Jesus goes to pray. He says, stay here, don't fall asleep. And then Roman soldiers come to take Jesus, which was part of the plan. And if Peter had believed that Jesus was gonna suffer and die like he said he would, that he should have, then he wouldn't have cared that Roman soldiers came. 
But Peter freaks out. He thinks that Jesus is supposed to be the one with authority and a sword. Peter draws his sword at the garden and cuts an ear, takes a swipe at a Roman soldier and cuts his ear off. Which you're probably thinking like, I know I did. I'm like, who taught this man how to swing a sword? <laughs> I had one guy, one teacher said, um, thank God that Peter was a fisherman because he cast his sword, you know. Anyway, um, Peter now at the Last Supper, he's lost it, man. He, he, I, I can't imagine the, the freak out for Peter. Probably losing his mind. He's at the Last Supper. Everybody's sitting around. The Last Supper is literally the last meal. We're about to take communion together. Um, the Last Supper, Jesus says to Peter, one of you will betray me. He says to all of his 12 disciples, one of you will betray me. Peter stands up, throws every one of his friends under the bus. There's 11 other men around him. They've lived together for three years, pretty close to each other. Peter says, all of these people will betray you, but not me, God. Imagine being that dude. You, we'd hate that dude. Like, man, get out of here. What's so ironic about that is Jesus says, you will betray me three times. He is so passionate. I mean, it's not like it was days ahead. I mean, you were talking about within hours, Peter had denied Jesus three times. And not one of those times did Peter have the sense to go, man, Jesus told me I was going to do this. Maybe I should not deny him that third time just so I can win the argument. In odes and curses, Peter denied Jesus around Roman soldiers. Now, all of a sudden, he's got odes and curses. He's lost his mind. Lost it. He denies Jesus. And then what happens with Peter is this. You don't hear from him again to the end of John when Jesus restores him. Peter leaves the faith. Doesn't count himself as a disciple. Mark's gospel, the original manuscript of Mark's gospel, has incredibly small, like very little detail about the resurrection of Jesus. You know why? Because Peter wasn't really around for it. He had gone, he was out. He denied the faith, denied Jesus, he's done. And then what happens, and this is why Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus does what he does. He goes and finds Peter, pursues him. Peter's not come back to the faith. Peter's not restored. Peter hasn't made the decision. I was wrong. I probably need to go figure this thing out. None of that. Jesus goes to Peter. He's out in a boat. Peter comes running into him. I love this. You know what Jesus does on the beach there? After he's resurrected, Jesus is resurrected. He cooks for him a meal of fish. And around a meal on the beach, Yahweh does what Yahweh does. He forgives Peter and restores him. The likelihood of many of you in this room that have denied the faith, denied Jesus in the way that you live and the things that you say in your lack of character or whatever, the amount of us that have denied him in our life in this room is overwhelming. That is attributed to all of us, every single one of us. And just the fact that you're here today means that God is pursuing you He's gonna do it through a meal. He wants to restore you today. Maybe you know God and you just have forgotten about him. 
Or maybe you're just questioning whether or not you know him at all. I don't know. Look at Peter's life. He knows you, man. He loves you. I promise you. He's not going anywhere. You can't break covenant with God. It's eternal. Come today, my invitation for you is if you don't know Jesus, don't come to the table. You need to come to Jesus. But for the rest of us, come to this communion meal. We do this every Sunday because we need restoration. We need to be people of remembrance. Come be restored today to Jesus. Let's stand as we get ready to take the table.